Wani, thank you very much for seeing me today, right? So let's get straight down to the issue of the day, right? Brain drain. Yeah. Now, you yourself had the opportunity to leave Malaysia. You were given scholarships and stuff like that, even going to Oxford, right? But you chose not to leave. You chose to stay back in Malaysia and then taking the hardest road becoming an MP. Why? I mean, I know my mum may not forgive me for that uh, <laughs> because I come from a family of civil servants and uh, getting a scholarship uh, to Oxford is once in a lifetime. However, um, there are about 1.8 million Malaysians, skilled Malaysians, who are abroad. But there are 33 million Malaysians who are here in Malaysia. Not every single Malaysian will have the option to leave. While I respect the decision of those who can leave and who choose to leave because they are as patriotic as me, it is my duty to ensure that I build a Malaysia where those at home who choose to stay can get a dignified job, um, good public transportation, good wages, uh, cares about climate change and the future of our country. That's about building a Malaysia which is dignified, in which all Malaysians are treated well, equally, in which all Malaysians know that they have an equal stake in this country, in which they can treat as their home. So, me living will not resolve all of that, <laughs> um, especially when I believe that the epicenter of change is politics, because mm. politics lead to policy decisions, institutional changes, in which will make my country a developed country, and I want to see that happen. All right, that's good. Now, I digress a little bit, so I just came out of my mm. mind, right? I was thinking, could it be that you stay back because uh, politics got money, right? But I was thinking, being an MP, your salary is oh, about like, uh, it's I, open I, right now, right? I can, I can open all of this 20 over yeah. thousand, right? Mm. But I was thinking to myself, actually, if you go Singapore, right, with your qualification, you can easily earn the same amount yeah. of money there as mean, a look, professional, right? Okay, let me be very frank. And to be fair, it's not, ju not just me, including my, my colleagues in opposition, people like Mr. Gobin. Uh, so let me just give context. When I got the scholarship, it's worth about half a million. Okay, to study in Oxford. And then once I come back, the wages will be much higher. I've already gotten multiple job offers. Even before I went, I was working four different part-time jobs. Uh, I was the youngest part-time lecturer in IUM. I was a debate trainer. Not just in Malaysia, I had the opportunity to teach in more than 20 countries with really good pay. Those countries like Qatar pays in US dollar, which is hallelujah. Uh, <laughs> so it was quite a decent living. Plus that offer scholarship, I think that's great. When you join politics, especially when you're in opposition and no one has ever given a chance for opposition to lead in government in 2017, 2018, you have to come up with a lot more of your money, not the other way around, right? Uh, and then post-election, yes, to me, the salary of a politician, what more a minister, is a lot adequate than what people think. Right? It's, it's enough. At times it could be luxurious and a lot of things which we need to change. However, while saying that, um, I think those who rely on politics for money will fail. If you join politics to become rich, then this is not the sector for you. Join a business, start your own business, join private sector. Because politics must be about service. Because it, to some extent, it could be unrewarding, especially if you can survive and thrive in private sector. If you meet people like Mr. Gobin, I mean, his one case is equivalent to his three-month salary as a minister. <laughs> And he deals so many cases every day. And I know so many people in opposition who are like that. Yeah. So to me, politics should be about public service. Not to say that, oh, you should not get a salary at all. You must, and a dignified one so that you are not uh, relying on corruption and corrupt money. But the point which people think that politics is luxurious 
should be about money and contracts, then I think that's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Uh, and that's why uh, when I joined, I always believe in institutional changes. I was the first minister to declare all my assets so that if I'm corrupted, people can look, wow, initially your assets on this, after you become minister, suddenly your assets are all the way mm. up. And not just me, my whole family had to do it. Right. Um, I, I, in my ministry, there was an almost a 100% policy on open tender. That's why when they raided my office looking even for a single cent of public money, which I took, they couldn't find. Because almost all of it was done via open tender. I don't even know who, who, who the contractors are because I believe in the system. I don't want to interfere. I don't want my office to interfere. Um, so now it's about building that system because to be corrupt is very easy if the system allows you to do so. Right. And to me, it's about changing systems and institutions, not just relying on the goodness of a person right. because personalities change. That's good. So now we can confirm that you stay back here not because of money. La. At the end of the mm. day, if you move away from Malaysia or you took those offer and you come back, you could have actually earned even more. And just as you said, other opposition. Yeah. So at least we get that out of the way, right? Yeah. Now, moving on to the next part here. We know many Malaysia are actually leaving Malaysia because yeah. the salary is so low. Now, Malaysia and Singapore has been independent for Absolutely. about the same period of time. Mm. However, during this period, Singapore's uh, average salary growth it's so much higher yeah. as compared to Malaysia. Malaysia seems relevantly, yeah. you know, relatively stagnant in yeah. this case. So what happened? What's your view on this? Just let me give context. Uh. Uh, during the height of COVID, Singapore launched an ambitious plan to get a lot of Malaysian nurses to service the healthcare sector because of the strain of COVID. And the salary put up for a nurse in Singapore is equivalent to a surgeon in Malaysia. I think oh, wow. that says it all, right? And you, I, that's why I, I, it's wrong for me to say that just because you choose to work in Singapore, you are less patriotic than me. Because I don't understand the context which they're going through. Maybe it is out of survival, they need to help their family members. And they have to make that trip. So I respect that. But what do I do to make Malaysia better? I think from the onset is to acknowledge that we have a major wage issue in Malaysia. Um, the father of capitalism, which is the United States, for every dollar of profit created, 53 cents go to the workers. Okay? So he's looking at the GDP wage ratio. In Malaysia, it's 32 cents. Mm. And this is the father of capitalism. Right. <laughs> and yet, uh, we underpay our workers so much. But why is that? And what can we do about it? And that's where you see, um, I mean, I'm pretty sure you've heard the number, 71% of SPM leavers uh, will choose to work immediately in a gig economy instead of going for tertiary education. Yep. Many of them say they want to be influencer. <laughs> Correct. Uh, influencers and, and, and yeah, these are, these <laughs> yeah, are examples of... freelance kind of things, right? Yeah. yeah. Because, and I don't blame that, because for you to get a degree in Malaysia, you need six years. You have a student debt of about 100,000 ringgit on your yep. back. And then when you start, your salary is 2001, which That's is right. about the same like 10 years ago. But if you look at Uniqlo, I mean, you can just check the, the Uniqlo advertisement. Oh. SPM leavers 2002, 2300 ringgit. I mean, how would you feel after... <laughs> Six years, right? And then your friend or your younger brother just finished SPM is being paid the same salary. Okay. Uh, can I speak about solutions now or do I wait? <laughs> I have a long so, list of okay. solutions. So, having said that, I, I can see that you, you have a strong view on this matter. Now, you being a policy maker mm. right now, what would you propose to actually solve this problem, Major? Do you yeah. think it's solvable? Yeah, it's definitely solvable. So, I just share that the biggest problem in Malaysia is not unemployment. The unemployment figures in Malaysia is about 3 to 4%. Right. And it's yeah, worse than 4 to 5. Low. It's relatively low to the region. However, the rate of underemployment have quadrupled from 500,000 
10 years ago to now about 2 million. Right. Which means that you as an engineer, 6 years of studies, 100,000 ringgit debt, but now you're working in the gig economy, which has nothing to do with your Maybe job. Maybe like a grab driver Correct. or like yeah. a salesperson in a, in a retail store. So you know, with your kind, skills, right? you are being underpaid and you are being underemployed, you're not being able to utilize it. And that's a major problem. And to me, that's the biggest crisis in Malaysia. And that's why people end up living uh, for greener pastures abroad. Quickly, three solutions. Number one, we need to immediately help those who do not have the heart to study for six years. And there are a lot of Malaysians. The, the, the stats do not lie. Yep. What do we do to capture them and to ensure that they get a dignified wage? I think the Malaysian education system should not just fetishize over a degree for six years, but we need to start subsidizing micro-credentials a lot more. For okay. example, if you want to be a social media influencer, a lot of them will just learn online without proper certification. Mm -hmm. You need to learn how to do video editing, you need to know the algorithms, you need to do the ads, you also need to know how to commercialize. There are short three to six month courses which are properly certified, certified by universities in and outside Malaysia. Okay. Government should fully subsidize that if you come from a B60 family. Because mm -hmm. then once you're done, you have a certification, this is something you're passionate about, you also upskill yourself, you can immediately access a job without having that 100,000 ringgit debt behind your back and waiting for six years. Right. And even if you fail that six months, you can still recover instead of six years and then joining a job is nothing to do. That's one. Micro-credentials are the future. Second part, I think government must start allowing for specialization in TVET earlier, technical and vocational education, mm -hmm. which is of utmost importance because again, um, if you look, Malaysia today, I shared with you, university, six years, no, not everyone wants to go through that. So, allow for 15-year-olds after their PT3, back then in our time, PMR, if they already think science is not my path, this is not my path, I want to do technical and vocational education. I like doing the short courses, I like doing hands-on subjects, I want to immediately work because I need to help my family after. Allow for that specialization when the person enters Form 4. And in that two years' time, immediately give the person the diploma. Why wait? Right? Every other part of the world is upskilling, reskilling, cutting the fat, moving in the job sector mm. earlier with proper experience and skills. And yet, for us, it's two years, from four, from five, and after that, you have to take a diploma, after that, it takes years and years before you graduate. Do that earlier because studies have shown again, with that diploma in TVET, in that two years timeline, once you are done, you start with a dignified salary, mm. about 2,000 and above, and in three years time, you can immediately hit 3,004 mm. to 4,000 ringgit. Mm. But you don't have that debt, you don't have that six years of waiting, you already have a proper diploma with you and on something you should believe in earlier. Mm. And I think this is quite similar to the German model. Yep. Right? So that to some extent deals with people who want an immediate job but a good paying job, that's two. The third part today, and this is slightly longer, just bear with me. So when I was part of government, I'm not sure I understand. So when, when uh, I was part of government, I fought for an income supplement model. Okay. Which is um, a lot of developed countries have done it, Singapore did it as well, to ensure that jobs which are not paid enough because there's a gap with private sector and the demand of workers, All right. government comes in temporarily. Okay. So you can look it up. We got a 6.5 billion job stimulus package passed in the 2020 budget, right before mm -hmm. the government changed. It's called Malaysia Courage. In English, it's called Malaysia at Work. It is meant to deal with the problem of underemployment. I give a simple context. Let's say you are an engineer. You've been underemployed for 12 months. Mm -hmm. Unemployed means you are an engineer, but you are doing grab or doing a job which has nothing to do with your skill set, right. Right, with your degree. 
So then what the government would do, because once you are unemployed for a long time, and an engineering firm is less likely to hire you, because that's right. you've been out of the market for a very long time, you're doing a job which has nothing to do, therefore, six years gone of your that's studies, right. right? And the longer you wait, the harder it is for you to, to be re-employed in the field which you study that's on. Right. So what government would do, because to get uh, employers and force employers to hire you, that's not possible. We can't force companies to do it, but what we can is to incentivize. Let's say the company says, okay, because you've been out of the job market for too long, I can only afford to pay you 1,008. Okay, 1,008, which is very low. Mm-hmm. So what government would do is that government would provide an income supplement for the next 12 months, 500 to 700 ringgit. So let's say 1,008, then in the end, you will get 2,500 ringgit. The income supplement will not go to the company because I don't want to help the company, I want to help you. Right. But the company then will get an additional worker while, he, while the company only pays 1,008, government supplements another 700 ringgit for the next 12 months. This is a tried and tested model. Why does it work? One, it reduces the cost of employment for companies. Two, the money goes directly to you, which means that you get a dignified wage. That's right. And you get reskilled, upskilled by working in that company with proper experience, your CV gets better, and your ability to climb up the social economic ladder will also get better as well. Mm. So instead of me giving you a one-off payment of 500, 1,000 ringgit, which often happens now, which doesn't make you climb up the social economic ladder, I reskill, skill you, I work in private sector, but give you directly the income supplement, you get a dignified wage and job, and at the same time, you're able to prove yourself. Right. Many people ask me, but what will happen after that 12 months? Right? That means, in the end, then the company will just pay 1,008. Studies have showed, for young people, we just need to get ourselves in the door. <laughs> Once the door is open, we can prove ourselves. And that's why I believe in the youth of Malaysia. Yeah. Problem today, we're not given the opportunity. Right? After 12 months, why would a company give you an opportunity when, they're seen, when you are seen to be unskilled mm. and you are too left out? But once you have that one step in, in that 12 months time, studies have shown that the company will most likely retain you with a higher salary because they know now that they have worked with you, they know you, they've reskilled you, and you're more likely to become an mm. asset. Mm. And that's a big multiplier right. for Malaysia. So these are the very three quick things which I'd like to humbly suggest. Right. So the idea is that you create a system where it actually, instead of uh, spoon-feeding the people, yeah. but creating a system that allows, that empowers people with Correct. the skill set to actually uh, to have social mobility. They can move up Correct. themselves. They're yeah. given the, 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 the empowerment to actually fight for the opportunity yeah. themselves rather than, uh, I give you 1,000 ringgit, 2,000 yeah. ringgit, then you just... Yeah. Because uh, again, I mean, don't, don't, don't follow me because I'm not the expert. I read policy papers by experts and I adopt because policy papers and experts have shown that giving one-off welfare assistance, which is very important for those who are very poor, but the multiplier is not big. Instead of going down this route, when you get to reskill a person, upskill a person, get the person into a, into a skilled job in which that person can then climb up the social economic ladder, the multiplier is three to five instead of mm. a welfare, which is one ringgit to one ringgit. Right. So now it's one ringgit for every one ringgit spent, it's five ringgit, right. which the country gains. Mm. So I'm looking for better investments and the best way to invest is in you as an, as an employee or as an employer building the country's economy. Right. I think the other one that I, I truly think that is a very good idea is the idea of the TVET one. Mm. Uh, I think it's very funny that in Malaysia that TVET is looked as yeah. a low-class yeah. education, right? Mm. But if you actually go to Germany, it's actually very, very common. Yeah. In fact, at one point, uh, there was this German-Malaysian institute in Malaysia yeah. and it was pretty prestigious. Yeah. I recall that like companies like Intel, they all will 
choose right. these guys it's still and they're there. not really degree guys right yeah. and in fact I was hearing this talk uh, from the director at one mm. point they were talking about the problem that they're facing yeah. and so on uh, if you all can pick out that episode uh, mm. I think it's from BFM do go and check it out mm. uh, but I think yes if TVET can be more well promoted can be given a dignified status yeah. I think it would actually attract much more people because yeah. if let's say there are people who say that I, I would love fixing motorbikes yeah. or motorcar and they yeah. can be experts in that Correct. field even without a degree yeah. right? and getting paid very well at the same time yeah. and, right? and these are the examples of the micro-credentials I'm talking about and the early TVET education because if you want to specialise in that or you like doing that why do you need two to four years to get a certification and why mm-hmm. must you only start after you are 18 yeah. Right, that is your passion. Start early. So that's one part behind it. If you want me to rent a lot more TV, I can because <laughs> that's where I feel most passionate, which is on education. Right. Okay. I would love to continue that. Uh, but let us move on to the next part, right? Mm. Let's talk about opportunities. Yeah. Now, you see, when I talk to my friends who actually left the country and I ask them, like, hey, is it just about the pay? They say it's not just about pay, it's also about the problem of opportunity. And, mm. and this is the same across all races, whether they are Chinese, Malay, Indian, or whatever race who actually left Malaysia. Mm. They say it's not just about pay, Correct. it's about the access to opportunity. Mm. They feel that it's unequal in Malaysia. Mm. So why is this happening in Malaysia? Because we are building a system based on equal outcomes and not equal opportunities. What do you mean by that? So equal outcomes means that we create a largely unequal system in hopes that everyone will be equal at the end. Okay. Right? So even, even though the system is filled with unfairness, but it's hoping that through this uh, miracle mathematical equation that, okay, this, pers- this group will have 30%, this group will have 50%, this group will have 40%, which is very vague and ambiguous to begin with, but we are focusing a lot more on the outcomes instead of providing equal opportunities. Okay. okay? So I'm, av- <coughs> I'm advocating for a system in which we build a country which is based on equal opportunities. So equal opportunities is a fusion between merit and needs. Because you cannot treat, for example, uh, a Chinese family in Parit Jawa, in which the total net income of the family per month is 2,000 ringgit, which is very low, and have five children, cannot send their son or daughter to tuition. Most likely the son or daughter will be working part-time as well yep. to take care of the family. Yep. And then expect that particular family who's living in hardship to get the same grades as a Malay family who lives in Damansara, whose parents earn 15,000 collectively right. a month. So that's where the needs basis come in, comes in. So it's a combination of both. We include the hardship of the family, the circumstances, and then we assess a person based on that. All right. Now, however, that is a very beautiful, you know, it's a very nice way of putting it and it's great. I think it's great. But the question is that, this is easier said than done. How, how on earth are we going to come up with a policy that actually can, can, can combine these both and bring out this value and execute it? It's not easy. I mean, you have to shake the system. If not, why join politics if you just remain <laughs> status quo, right? I mean, and that's why I'll make the case. I'm a Malay, right? And I know that people out there say, oh my God, Sadiq, you're saying this, you're going to hurt Malays like this. No, I, I, I don't believe that. I think the current system has hurt my community more than ever. All right. See, we've had decades of the same NEP, National Economic Policy, decades. But after decades of the same preferential, preferential treatment, a quarter of Bumi Putra Sabans are still living below poverty line. I'm not even talking about B40, poverty line. Mm. Doesn't that signal a great policy failure? Mm. When 
someone from a privileged family, sons and daughters of Datuk Sri's, can still get a scholarship, government scholarship, while my constituent in Moa, Chinese constituent I know of, in Sri Minanti, comes to me and say that the person cannot even get a place in university, what more a scholarship, despite getting excellent grades and representing the state, where do I put my face? I mean, it is my duty to change that system, right? So if that's not a signal for failure, I do not know. What is, and while all of this is happening, the same problematic system is said to have worked while inequality, even among the Malays, the rich and poor is growing from bad to worse. Yes. So it's not just inter-ethnic disparity, even intra-ethnic disparity is getting worse. So it's not yep. just an issue about race and religion. It's also about class, which uh, looks beyond issues of race and religion only. Yeah. So a system of equal opportunities must be there. However, I do understand you are right when you say it's not that easy to change it in totality. But one is we need to have that vision. And then you hit in that vision gradually while following data. We have mm. data. We have decades of data already. We know, for example, if you ask me, where can we change immediately? All those multi-billion dollar contracts which are said to be given to the Bumis for to help the Bumis get it out. No more. How does giving a multi-billion contract direct nego to a multi-billionaire will miraculously make my poor Malay fisherman and Batani better? <laughs> Tell me how. I understand if you say that in engineering, there are not enough Malay engineers. We need to give scholarships to them, help them because currently there's an unequal playing field. But I said, if you do an equal, a system of equal opportunities, they will be helped anyway because they are the ones who are generally in need. Right. And I'm pretty sure even if I ask you, who may not be a Malay, to say, should we help a Malay family who's underprivileged, poor, oh, but yeah. has a hardworking kid? You say yes. And if you ask me, if there's a Chinese kid in my area who's of that same quality, I'll say yes. Yeah. But the problem in Malaysia is no longer look, it's no longer depicted that way. It's just depicted all Chinese are rich, all Malay poor. Indians are obviously lost in between. They're forgotten. And then that, that system is used to divide us. So I think that's where we need to, to transition. And it must be that proper transition and use data to guide policy making. Because I believe once you put every Malaysian through the pressure cooker, that's where you have to compete with the best of the best, while you also acknowledge your background, your socioeconomic background, your family, etc., and merge that together, you force all Malaysians, regardless of race and religion, to be hyper-competitive, to climb to the top, not to the bottom. And in the end, that pressure cooker will create better Malaysians, competitive Malaysians, and I think that will spearhead success, not mm. just in Malaysia, but in our region. Right, right. I think one thing that definitely is true is that sometimes when uh, we are too focused on certain segment, right, uh, end of the day, there are certain other people who get marginalized, like we're talking about the Indian community, we're talking about the Orang Asli community as well, right? Uh, and one more thing that's very true is that even within, within a particular race, the wealth gap is actually very, very wide Correct. right now. Yep. Yeah, the rich are it's getting, getting worse. so much more richer and the poor are getting so much more poorer, right? And sometimes when I look at certain policies, uh, in my mind is that, yeah, it helps, but it seems to be helping more of the rich, right? Like, for example, if, you, if you're talking about getting a loan to make certain investments, yep. right? Who can afford the loan? You'll be the person with the income, not the person without the income. So although those investments sometimes yep. it's made out to help the poor, yep. but it doesn't seem like that's the case yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. So I think there's more that can be done. One thing I like the idea is the fact to going back to focus on education, right? Yeah. Like if you can just set up some more government community tuition centers, mm. 
that gives people free food mm. in the B40 community. Mm. I'm pretty sure that they are willing to skip their part-time job and come over and get their free food and tuition yep. at the same time. But yep. yeah, easier to be said than done again. Right, so going to this sector about education, I'll be very honest here. Yep. I myself have thought about leaving Malaysia. Mm. <laughs> Sorry guys, yeah, I, I'm still here. No yeah. one, no one, no, no one should judge you. By the way, no one should ever judge you for making that decision, including me as a policymaker. If anything, that will incentivize me as a policymaker to make this country a better place. So that if you leave, you will decide to come back out of your own choice. I like that view. Yeah. So I would love to give my children a better education. Mm. I benefited from Malaysia's education system to yeah. a certain extent, but I see the new generation education system. Uh, we hear a lot more complaints, yeah. right? Now, talk about this part here. Many of my friends, as well, whether or not they are migrating, they are sending their children overseas, and mm. we know that seventy percent of the people, or more than half of them, who actually study in overseas, won't come back. Mm. That statistic has shown yeah. that, right? Now, is that? What happened to Malaysia education system? Actually, we we were pretty good, right? We were pretty good. So, what happened? I think we need to start off by acknowledging that we are on a decline. If we are fearful to admit that, then we'll never be able to resolve it. And again, look at the numbers. The average Malaysian graduate is five years behind a Singaporean graduate. I want to start off by saying why I'm benchmarking myself to Singapore because I dislike it when we keep on benchmarking ourselves in the middle. Oh, we should only benchmark with Indonesia. We should only benchmark with Vietnam. We should only, hey, then we are benchmarking ourselves to South Korea, Japan, US, UK. Why are we benchmarking ourselves in the middle? So why do I mention Singapore? I'll start with this. The average Malaysian graduate is five years behind. So if you look at PISA rankings, which is for early education, a Malaysian student who's fifteen years old has the same comprehension as a Singaporean student who's only twelve years old. That's three years different, and that's a problem for early education. I'll talk about the solutions later. That's one. Once that student finishes SPM, um, and wants to enter university, on average it takes six years to get a degree. There are six to seven different pre-university courses, which is of different standards. There's ASASI, matriculasi, international baccalaureate, A-levels, diploma. I mean, you name it. There's so many. Yep. Other countries, it's just only one or two, which is standardized, and then, which is based on equal opportunities, they get in. Usually, it's only one year. Malaysia is one to three years. You get into university, you have another minimum four years. In total, it's about five to six years. Why do I care about this? Because we are two years behind. A Singaporean graduate would have two years of working experience, internships, right, and will be much more competitive in the job market than us. Yeah. And remember, today, post COVID, MNCs are no longer hiring just based on people in that country. Everything's online, so we mm. are actually competing with graduates in NTU, NUS, IIT Bombay, UP Delman. We must not take this lightly. So that's three plus two. Doesn't end there. That's five years. Yep. During COVID, not my numbers. Education Ministry number shows that one out of three Malaysian students don't even have access to a tablet, smartphone, or laptop. That means they were disconnected from online education for a good two years. And the numbers are far worse if you are living in Borneo, Sabah, Sarawak. More than fifty percent of students don't even have access to that. So can you imagine this five years plus during times of COVID. Another two years, Malaysians are behind. That's minimum five, maximum seven. Mm. And yet we keep on asking ourselves, mm, why are we not competitive? Why are businesses going abroad? Why are we not paid enough? Education is the root cause, and there's a lot of things to change. While I'm sharing all of this, the typical solution which all politicians will say is throw more money, 
Tromani, Tromani, Tromani. Yeah, and having said that, that's about like every year, 50 to 60 billion Correct. is being put into uh, education on our budget, right? Yeah. Um, so, with this kind of money being spent... Um, Brother, it's more than that. Thank you, numbers. Huh? <laughs> don't okay. just look, don't, 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 firstly, don't just look at the Ministry of Education budget. Because in All Malaysia, right. education institutions are divided into six, seven ministries. Right? Even in KBS, hey, you don't know KBS, we have 22 education institutes. That's a hundreds of millions of allocations every year. And the summa manusia, billions of allocations. Because they have so many. So that's why don't, don't, don't fall to trap. Oh, it's only this amount. No. Actually, it's a lot more than that. And it's not just, it doesn't stop there. Above and beyond that, despite the government spending so much on education, parents still spend half the amount of education budget, uh, half of the government's education budget through their own pocket money. Wow. Because even today, Malay middle class parents, but then they say, oh, international private school vernacular, only China, India, go lah, and got money. Today, even Malay middle class parents are willing to spend 25% of their disposable income to send their children to international and private schools. Mm. Yep. Because they distrust the system. And to me, this is worrying. Despite government putting so much money, parents who went to public school before are sending their children to a different system. Mm. And I can't blame the parents. They have the right and the choice to do it if we don't buck up. Right? So, to summarize, actually, in terms of money, why that's not the problem, in Malaysia, we outspend Singapore and Japan when it comes to GDP spending, education per capita. In Malaysia, we spend 17% on education per capita. Japan is 7%, Singapore is 12%. But why are we still behind? And that's a fundamental question which must be addressed, and I'll give my suggestions after this. Right. <laughs> so. Since we're moving on to suggestion, what it, since you know money is not a problem, right? Mm. What do you think can be done? Okay. I mean, previously, when we were talking about underemployment, I told you the three things which must be done quickly. More micro-credentials, right. TVET and at an earlier age, and then the job stimulus package via Malaysia Kerja. You want to go to more structural changes which must be made. The way in which you play catch-up is not by adding more years because it doesn't make sense. The way you play catch-up is by digitizing things. We all know when we mm. digitize things, we learn so much faster, you play catch up faster right. at other countries. Singapore has started, Malaysia must turbocharge, not just start. Singapore has already started by giving quality tablets, hack iPads, but obviously maybe you don't have that kind of money, uh, to those who come from B40 families so that they can tune into online education and it remains with them and they learn a lot of things online. In Malaysia, what I'm advocating for, immediately set aside money to get every single Dajah Satu student starting from one year or two years from now, depending on when we're in government, a quality tablet to replace textbooks. Mm. But the replacement textbook will be gradual because you can't radically change it, but everyone must get it, start getting it. All from B60, not B40, B60 because the reality during COVID, 500,000 middle class Malaysians fell into the B40 category. So I'm looking mm. at B60. Those who parents earn below 4,000, 4,500 ringgit, Give them a tablet, start that, replace textbooks. You know, you don't see kids going to the schools, bringing their big bags and then parents complaining and then uh, uh, them hurting their health and condition as well, their body condition, do that. But it's not because just that. Because studies have shown digital divide, best way to do it, just give that to the kid and the kid knows how to learn on his or her own with quality internet. So you match a quality tablet with quality internet together to every single Dajah Satu kid replacing textbooks and teach the kids how to use it 
and from there onward, how to learn different knowledge and experience and expertise via online. All right. That's how you reduce, I, I shared the divide is so big and the digital divide is particularly big because the reality is parents today are already giving your children tablets, laptops, but this comes from, I mean, slightly more well off. If not, a year one will never have that. And it also compels teachers to innovate how to teach, compels students to innovate how to teach. The way of teaching changes as well and it allows for self-learning. Right. And let's allow for self-learning at a much earlier age. That's one, which I think must be done immediately. And that's how you play catch up in terms of reducing the digital divide, especially when I just shared with you, it's so worrying that during times of COVID, we couldn't do online education mm -hmm. because our students were not equipped. That's one. Two, I'm also advocating for a system in which, and this is where I go slightly into university. Currently, to me, there is a massive debt trap run by unproductive and not fully certified private institutions. Okay, mm. You may have heard of this. Okay. Let's say you finish SPM, you applied to UPU, you didn't get in. And I'm telling you, your, your data is being sold already. Immediately when you don't get in, you'll notice suddenly you'll get a miraculous yes. letter your house. Congratulations, you've been given a spot to enter this random college somewhere. Uh, your parents will be very proud of you and it is 100% subsidized by PTPTN. You'll be like, wow, very good. You go. Right? Because we love to fetishize degrees. Right, in colleges and universities. You go, despite the fact that the employment audit of that college or university is like 60-50%, right? And they give you a course which again, will not get you employed. By the time you end, four or five years, you have a student that have 100-150,000 ringgit, you are unemployed. Right. Okay. And that's a big problem. Because in Malaysia, that's how we do PTPTN, loves giving, even though we know it may be unproductive, the employment audit is very low, bad track record, but because education is a business. I'm not going against all private universities. Some are really good, but I'm being strict. Why am I saying that? Because it takes away the opportunity from that SPM lever instead of going to universities or not universities, private colleges, which are almost defunct, weak, unproductive. Mm -hmm. We could have redirected that resource to fully subsidize either micro-credentials, which I shared just now, or to go to TVET colleges, but getting multi-skilled. Yep. Malaysia, we love to build a lot of TVET colleges. And trust me, bro, we have six different ministries with different TVET colleges under it. Yeah. Despite that, and we keep on building it. In parliament, you hear every time the typical MP will go, Menteri Pendidikan, tolong bawa institusi TVET dekat kawasan saya. They bring it, three years after that, it's empty, tutup, jual. Why? Because even TVET colleges today, their students are below 50%. Because there are so many empty spots, because we build so many, so many ministries, six, seven ministries have all of them, all have their own turf wars. But then they go to the debt trap, thinking that they want to fetishize over a degree, and are unemployed. Instead, if you look at TVET, the mm -hmm. employment level is, uh, sorry, 97%, one of right. the highest, 97%, and your starting salary is decent. And you don't have a student debt, it's almost 100% subsidized by government. But yet, so, you can, so the point I'm trying to make, you can't just say, oh, government should be serious in TVET. It's not about just promoting TVET with your words and with you know, big multi-billion dollar campaigns or TVET is good. You must make structural changes, right? And I think we have a lot to learn from Germany. Start early, treat TVET as good as universities, but you cannot just see it in your mouth, in policy changes, in reallocation yep. of resources. Not everything's going there, right? So I'm advocating for that change. Instead of a debt trap model, 
redirect resources, PTPTN, to underprivileged students, TVET, if you have to pay them every month a higher salary, or sorry, a higher allowance, do it. Because either way, today right. we're doing it. We're paying every single TVET um, a student about 100 to 200 ringgit allowance. But let's not forget, they come from a very poor family. They need to survive. 100 to 200 ringgit is not enough. And at the same time, they will most likely to work immediately after. So if it means paying them more, it's okay then. Them going to a private college, parents selling their land, selling their, their assets to send their children to a, to a potentially defunct uh, um, private college, mm. which will get the whole family 100, 150,000 debt service by the government of Malaysia via PTPTN. So change it. I mean, we have to have the, not both, we have to have the courage to, to change it. So I have a lot right. more suggestions, but I'll stop here first. But these are structural changes which must be made. Just allow me one more. There's two. Yeah. That one, very briefly. Go on. I shared to you just now that it takes a long time to graduate in Malaysia, six years. I'm arguing trim the fat, follow international model. Instead of six years, have followed the K-12 model, where instead of having so many pre-university entrants, which may be unfair and unjust, have K-12, one year kindergarten, 12 years, immediately you finish, you enter university. University, minimum, sorry, maximum three to four years, done. So you graduate two, three years earlier. This is an international model, I'm not saying it out of my uh, uh, own knowledge, so that you graduate earlier. So I give one simple example. Uh, uh, are you a graduate of public university? Yep, UPM. Okay, then you will remember, definitely you'll remember, because I'm from public university as well. When you go in, you have so many mandatory university and national stuff you have to take. You have the TITAS, you have, I don't know, oh, UITM, yeah. you have the Kawak Kaki, compulsory, uh, two semesters. Kawak Kaki? Kawak Kaki. <laughs> you have, at times you have to learn all these patriotic subjects again, yes, yes. all of this, which takes up a lot of your time pushes your graduation behind, which makes absolutely no sense. If you still don't understand your country, the language, whether it's Basel English, your religion, when you are an adult in university, there's something wrong with primary education, <laughs> right? So university should really focus on your core subject. University is about specializing and focusing. That is what the university is about. It's not primary secondary education. My argument is not to ban them or remove them. My argument is make it electives. If you really want to take it, you're an engineering student and you really want to learn kawak kaki in your ITM, great. I'll even subsidize it. But don't force everyone in your class to do it. Mm. Just not everyone to do it. Another student may want to take entrepreneurship class. Another student may want to learn how to cook. Another student may just want to enjoy his time pursuing his passion in debating or doing internships outside. Yep. Point is, why is there a different class of treatment? Malaysian elites, Malaysian students, when they send their children to study abroad, the universities, you know, they only three years they graduate, they graduate much earlier, classes only three times a week, sorry, uh, three days a week, and then they can do multiple internships, part-times, and reach their CV, mm. and then when they come back, they are two years ahead of a Malaysian graduate. Yep. Right, so, to sum it all, I think these are things which I really want to do, and, in, and that's in university, we need to also look at primary, secondary education to yep. make it a lot more relevant. But in, I want to sum it up this way. All of this, I think, can only happen if you revamp and overhaul the system, not just making cosmetic changes. Mm -hmm. But I think we must be doing that because I shared there is a decline and we are playing catch-up. And when you play catch-up, you cannot make cosmetic changes only. And with that in mind, I get super infuriated when I bring this up. And then they will always be in parliament. Friends, either in government or in opposition, will say, Sadiq, it's impossible to do. You'll be labelled as anti-Malay, anti-Islam. But to me, these guys are bloody hypocrites. They are hypocrites because they want to keep status quo in public schools. They don't want to change it. They don't want to change public universities. But 
These are the same people who don't even want to send their children and grandchildren to public schools. Tadika in France, Sekolah Kebangsaan, which is not Kebangsaan, their early education in Eton College, on all the expensive, fancy uh, colleges in the UK, and then university abroad as well. But then at home, tak boleh, kena kekalkan sistem yang sama. So they're creating an education system, one for the poor and the middle class and one for the rich. So that their children will forever have a comparative advantage against those from the middle class and the poor so that they cannot compete with their children. And I think they are damn hypocrites. If they, want, if they don't trust our education system and they send their children abroad because they think that's much better, sure, I'm not going to ban you from sending them abroad. And I respect your choice to do so. But at least have the courage and the iron in you to change our education system so that we can dream that our education system, even a poor single mother with three children can access the same quality of public education as a rich uh, science minister. We must aspire for that. All right, so th there's a lot that, that you just said just now, but maybe let's put it into a more execution way, right? Like yeah. if let's say you were to be given the opportunity to be the minister of education, right now, and you can take charge of this whole education thing. What kind of change will you specifically implement? How will you implement it? And what kind of result do you think you will be able to bring about? Yeah. I think I'll start off by getting a group of experts in education to advise me, not just local, but also abroad, to ensure that our education system will be of equal standard, if not better, than Singapore. The reason why I always keep on bringing Singapore up, because it is a tried and tested model which succeeds. Yep and it's considered to be one of the best in the world, including by Scandinavian and Western countries. Yep. And so once there are people I, actually Malaysian anyway. Correct, <laughs> correct. So that's one, and I'll be advised by them. Two, I'll promote a culture of decentralization. All right. Because at the same time, we need to give credit to our schools and principals who, if you are in a school in Bandar, in a school in a rural center, very different, who can experiment different methods, different ways, different priorities. Decentralization is a model which has been tried and tested and it works. Mm. And by then you can also assess which one is better, which one is not. If they think they're experiment with a lot more English, give them the right. In Sabah and Sarawak today, state governments come to me and say they want to have English schools and convert it, I will allow. I will allow. Because then I'll have data to show that students go through that stream, comes out better, become better graduates, then I can start applying nationwide. Right. I mean, Xi Jinping did that, right? Sorry, not Xi Jinping, Deng Xiaoping in China. When you started opening up China, I used Shanghai as a model first. And when it was a successful model, open up. Malaysia can learn from that because we are a federation. Mm. We can afford to try. Three under it as well. I'd like to suggest for a complete auditing from, when I say auditing, don't think the typical forensic auditing about money. That's always there. But everything's not just about money as I shared before. It's about changing and shaking the system. To look at the relevance of subjects, uh, the ability to churn out good graduates, whether it's industry-related as well, yep. right? especially from primary, secondary school, and then pre-university to university. I shared all my plans just now already. Um, and once you include all of that in, I think you can really revamp our education system for good, which is to future-proof our education system, make it fully relevant, digitize it as much as possible, with a lot of the tablets and laptops which will be brought in, and quality internet, and allowing children to explore their passion and experience by not overburdening them day and night, not just when they're in primary and secondary school, but when they're in universities to the point that they cannot go for multiple internships, work part-time jobs because classes from Monday to Friday and weekends, they're also extra compulsory extracurricular classes. 
You're both from public universities, we'll know that. So I want to shake that. But the end goal is, in 10 years time, our education system must be one of the best in the world and comparable to Singapore in the region. Mm. Mm. I think that's very true. I think the audit about uh, making sure that those subjects that are taught are actually relevant to life skills, right? Uh, like we have seen many subjects that are not really relevant at the mm. end of the day. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking of myself, like financial literacy should be one subject that's being taught, yeah. right? Like, um, and there are certain stuff like uh, drama kind of things, like mm. uh, what do you call that? Uh, improv. It, it teaches how, yeah. how you can be better in conversation with people, yeah. you know? Things kind of like how the US or, or, or Korea they all mm. does it, where at the end of the day, you are, you are really given the platform to discover what you're good at yeah. and specialize in it, which allows you to later decide on your tertiary education. Do you want to go to the TVET? Yeah. Do you want to just focus on programming? Do you want to be a musician? Do you want to uh, go into drama? And all these skills link up together, we know that by the time you come out work, it's all linked up. Yeah. Like you can be the best guy in IT, exactly. but if you don't know how to talk to people, you likely won't get promoted. Correct. <laughs> yeah, so Correct. all these kind of skills, I think, I hope that part we definitely can do as Malaysia. Yeah. Right? And it's going to be a tough journey. Yeah. So we'll having said that on how we're going to get there, I want to ask you really one difficult question here, right? which is Muda is actually a relatively new party. Yeah. Right? And in terms of being a part of the PH coalition, it is also just one of the many parties. Mm. The voice is still relatively small. So I know you have big dreams and we all want to see that happen. But how do you plan to carry this out, being a small voice in a very big setting there? Muda is a party driven by principles, values, ideals and the demand for policy change. In a coalition, out of a coalition, we'll never ever lose that rigour and that demand. And whether we are outside of government or inside of government, the demands on policies will be our utmost priority. Right? And I want to focus on that because Muda is not meant to be created only for one election, but it's for multiple elections and really getting our message to make Malaysia a multiracial, multireligious, moderate policy-centered country. And I want that. So saying that, we do acknowledge that we are the so-called newest kid on the block. Uh, we have 80,000 members um, and that we are under-resourced because we don't have any control of federal governments, state governments like other parties. But the interesting part about Muda, I know people who join share the same ideals and values. The rigour and pushing for more solutions is a solution, as a solution-centred party. So whatever is to happen in the next election, rest assured, wherever I'm at, even if I were to lose my seat, I'll be speaking the same language that I'm speaking today. Policies, 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 solutions, 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 making Malaysia a country for all Malaysians. And I think we need to keep on hammering that home. And even if it means potentially losing power, even if it means fighting a very tough uphill battle, let's do it. Because we're young, we can afford to do it, and this is an investment in our country. So that's all our interview with YB Said Sadiq. Thank you very much. Thank you.